Today is the 14th of June, 2022, full moon. And uh, tonight we're going to take up the topic of meditation and anger. Uh, we're going to be reading from an article by Rita Gross um, from the book Being Bodies, edited by Lenore Friedman and Susan Moon. Um, we're going to take up this, this article as a kind of case study, um, the topic that people elected to discuss, discuss this sun, coming Sunday um, was the precept number nine, not to indulge in anger but to practice forbearance. Um, and one of the, press, the questions I think that comes up pretty regularly with when people learn of this precept is they ask, well, what about injustice? Really, there's so much to be angry about. Won't this blunt my, my, uh, my righteous indignation about wrongs in the world? The, the original version of uh, this precept, um, I think it was changed around about the time that we maybe got involved with the center, but it had been simply do not get angry before, not to get angry. And apparently this is closer to the original, uh, but it was felt after some years of having this, this precept that it really was unhelpful to, to say not to get angry because um, it's, very, it's a very lofty state to be completely without anger. And it was felt not only be unhelpful to set the bar so high, but also that it could be unhealthy and that um, in an effort to, to, to rise up to the, the standard being suggested, people um, were suppressing their anger, numbing out, and um, this is not really quite unhealthy. Um, just to give an idea of, of how f advanced one has to be to, to not get angry, from the Theravada point of view, it's, it's only when you're just shy of a hardship that you become free of ill will and desire. Um, in the, that's the, the, what's called the non-returner. And then right before that is the, the once-returner in which the ill will and desire are, are apparently attenuated. So this, this um, being completely free of ill will and, and, and desires is held up as a very highly purified state in the Theravada. But it's a, it's a little bit different in the Mahayana tradition. Um, think of um, a question that was asked to Master Joshua one time, how do we get rid of our passions? And he replied, why should we get rid of them? Or from the Vilamakirti Sutra, um, the passions which accompany us, accompany us are the seeds of Buddhahood.
So we'll turn <coughs> to this article and um, some of you may know who Rita Gross is. Um, it's a little bit about her in the back. Um, she's the late Rita Gross now um, and there's been another book of hers published posthumously, which, which I haven't read yet, but um, she's the author of a book called Buddhism After Patriarchy, A Feminist History Analysis and Reconstruction of Buddhism. And it was published in um, 1993, and she was a long-term student of uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and has been a teacher in both academic and dharmic contexts. And it's, I would recommend the book. It's a, it's a very fine, fine-grained, detailed, very well-reasoned uh, exploration of um, patriarchy and androcentrism within uh, Buddhism. Here she's telling, she's telling a, a kind of a story about, about her um, taking up meditation and, and how it affected her um, in her as an activist, really. Then we'll have a, there's a little bit of lead in that we'll need to get to set the scene for the story. She writes, um, human birth is precious in Buddhism because the human body is the basis for the practices that facilitate realization. Without that human body, it is impossible to do such practices. In Vajrayana traditions, we are encouraged to contemplate this premise, precious human body, free and well-favored, difficult to obtain, easy to lose. Now I must do something useful. Um, another, another way of saying this that we've, we've brought up many times um, as we go into Sishin, as a reminder, pre our precious human life of leisure and opportunity. Such contemplation on the worthiness of the body contrasts significantly with the devaluation and fear of the body found in so many religious systems, including those which most of us grew up in. Such body affirmation is part of the refreshing emphasis on the basic goodness of human beings in the world that is so essential to Vajrayana Buddhism. Basic goodness is another way of talking about our Buddha nature. Nevertheless, traditional Buddhism also contains contradictory teachings that suggest that when the precious human birth occurs in a female body, then that birth is less precious. Female rebirth resulting from negative karma due to misdeeds in a previous life was thought to be unfortunate women's spiritual and intellectual capabilities were considered to be lower than those of men and their female bodies not disposed to dharma practice. 
Women did not deserve to be involved in religious learning and teaching and were given many fewer opportunities to practice the Dharma than were men. Now from, from one angle you could say that it was true to say that, that um, female birth was, was uh, unfortunate um, because in their state of being oppressed, by the conditions of, of the patriarchy, so to speak, it it was it was um, more of a struggle. More, there was more suffering in it. But of course, this wasn't because of anything intrinsic about females. It was because of the circumstances that they found themselves in. But for, for um, many centuries, the, the correction to this, this problem of being born female was to be given practices um, that were perhaps inferior to the ones given to men, and specifically prayers that, um, for instance, Tibetan nuns were given a prayer to say every day, which, which basically asked for them to be reborn as males so they could become monks. And we can, we can imagine what the, the kind of message that sends to, to um, young and impressionable minds. So we, she points out that we have in Buddhism what is found in many other traditions, uh, an implication that, that men are the normal human beings while women are somehow um, the exception to the rule, not really fully human. She writes, the stark assessment of the effects of having a female body on precious human birth elicits two observations. First, it is based on circular reasoning. Women have not been trained in Buddhist meditation and philosophy because they have been evaluated as inferior human beings. But then their lack of achievement in philosophy or meditation is used to justify not providing them with opportunities for training. Second, such evaluations of the worth of women's precious birth have devastating effects on our self-acceptance, our matri, or loving-kindness in Buddhism. Buddhist terms. Maitri is the Sanskrit way of pronouncing metta, which has become more current in our, in our culture. It's a very important point she makes. These evaluations of, of women's precious human birth as being less, less precious, you could say, have devastating effects on our self-acceptance our matri or loving kindness. In, in Buddhist terms, many practices encourages us to, encourage us to start where we are and to accept who we are as human beings. But this is difficult if we also believe what we've been told about our inferiority and our need to start over with male bodies. For me, she writes, Feminism is a powerful antidote to such teachings. 
whether in a Western or in Buddhist guise. Since I define feminism as the radical practice of the co-humanity of women and men, feminism is about cherishing precious human birth in a female body. When we talk about feminism in the context of spiritual practice, we are talking about taking the Buddha nature of women as seriously as we have been taking the Buddha nature of men, including finding and training young women to be our next generation of teachers, just as we have always been willing to accept young men as teachers. Now, this was, um, this book was published, I think, around 1997, so um, it reflects a, a time when the less of this was done. Unfortunately, the more we know about Buddhist history and some contemporary forms of Buddhism, the more we realize how much we need feminism. Many people do not realize how much negativity toward women is in the Buddhist heritage. This is why it is so important to be aware and critical of the residue of such attitudes still found in current iconographies and liturgies. Feminism is an upaya, or skillful means, appropriate to counter this, such negativity toward women. I cannot imagine taking my bodhisattva vows seriously or working to promote an enlightened society without being a feminist. Now then she goes on to talk a little bit about her childhood growing up in the 1950s and how she um, hated being female because it seemed like all the things that she wanted to do with her life were things that girls were not allowed to do. She writes, I wanted to explore the world, to read, to think, to discover reality. The human activity that I value most is naming reality, especially in religious and spiritual ways. The activity of putting raw, inchoate, perceptions into words that others may find helpful has always beckoned me. But every direction in which I tried to go was marked by a sign that read, stop, no girls allowed. My patriarchal culture insisted that such exploration and spiritual development was not my gender role. The patriarchal prison of gender roles teaches that not only are women not quite real human beings, it also teaches that women should willingly accept having their reality named for them by others. What do you do with a situation like that? As a child, you don't understand that the system is with it, that the problem is with the system, not with you. A girl who wants to think about reality. So you accept it as a fact that there's something wrong with you. Either my desire to think about reality was wrong or my female body was wrong. My desire to explore the world was too persistent for me to give that up. So for years as a child, I hated my female body because it was the impediment to being the human being I wanted to become. But then she re relates an experience she had in her, in her parents' um, dairy. 
I think with dairy in the traditional sense of a um, uh, what do you call it a place that sold sold people milk I guess you can say she says I don't know quite how it happened but sometime in my late teens I had one of those aha experiences that save your life if you can remember them and not fall back into habitual patterns. While dancing between the milk cans in our shoestring dairy operation, I experienced a very strong realization. It's not me. It's not, I'm not what's wrong here. There's nothing wrong with my female body. It's the system, the system. I have a strong body memory of how I felt at that moment. I felt powerful synchronization of body and mind, mental delight meshed with physical alertness, and a sensation of freedom and empowerment. The insight was very brief, almost instantaneous, but I don't believe ever again that I said, if only I weren't female. Why did I have to be female? She, she looking back on this experience, she realized that um, it was a moment of, of matri, metta, deep self-acceptance that hadn't been possible up to that time. And these, these life-changing insights often come with, this, with a, a, a bodily, as a bodily experience. She said, years, says, years later, when I encountered Buddhist beliefs that my female body needed to be traded in for a male one before I could truly practice, the memory of this experience kept me from taking that doctrine seriously. I knew that this female body could learn. I could name reality and create culture. I could become a teacher. I knew I did not have to wait around until I had a male body. So this became for her a deep conviction. And we can point out here too that these, these uh, insights that we have um, are not something we can will. They come to us and, and are more powerful because of that. That insight was followed by years of what I would now characterize as complaint and aggression which, though painful in its own way, was a lot healthier than the previous self-rejection. And this, this can happen when we, we're overcoming this kind of inner oppression that um, it then gets, it gets externalized and becomes um, aggression towards the perceived enemy. working out or working through that, that um, previous self-rejection. I was a pioneer in my field, the feminist study of religion. I was also angry because I was punished professionally rather than rewarded for my feminist insights. I responded to the academic establishment with verbal aggression and sarcasm at every opportunity. If on a daily basis you're having your life taken away from you because of your gender, from a conventional point of view, it would be logical to be angry about that. 
If you're going to get angry about anything, that's something worth getting angry about. In terms of Buddhist psychology, I'm describing unenlightened Vajra energy, and I lived with that for many years. Um, Vajra energy uh, probably just means um, active or strong, we might say yang energy. So she lived out of this place for, for many, many years in her work. Many people, and particularly those with a meditative practice, dismiss feminism because of the anger they see displayed. While it is true that many feminists often become ideological and aggressive, it's helpful to look at the situation using some basic Buddhist tools instead of glibly writing off feminism as too aggressive. According to Mahayana teachings, aggression always rises from pain. The angry feminists who are such a turn-off are expressing their pain at having their lives taken away from them by a sex or gender system that doesn't work. Usually, as Buddhists, we try to understand the source of a person's aggression and also the critical intelligence that is always present within aggression. But feminists are often dismissed, quite aggressively. What does this say about women's precious human birth? We, we can be probably can, um, need to be reminded at times to do this when we, um, when we encounter strident protesters who we, we perhaps disagree with, that their, 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 their aggression, their energy is coming from um, some basic kind of pain that needs to be recognized. And that there's this, this um, there'll be this kernel of truth there if we can uncover it. She continues, for Buddhists to be willing, even aggressively unwilling, so I'll read that again, for Buddhists to be unwilling, even aggressively unwilling, to examine conventional habitual patterns such as gender roles is rather odd. This may be the only realm in which ignorance is not only tolerated, but actually encouraged. Often these deep-seated prejudices are, are um, actively ignored, because to face them is, is threatening. She, she says that this ignorance is found at all levels um, within Buddhist groups. From, she says, the language of our liturgies all the way up to Buddhist leadership. And she gives the example of her own Sangha, which back in 1997 at least was still doing all the chanting with generic masculine language in it and with very, very few um, images of, of feminine deities, even though they exist within the tradition. Uh, my teacher, Roshi Bowden, was present in Dharamsala at a meeting with the Dalai Lama, in the, I think it was in the mid, earlier mid-90s. 
and there's a Tibetan nun there who took them through a visualization um, of imagining um, what it would be like for a male practitioner to come to a center where all the images were of female deities and all the chants had, had feminine pronouns through them. And um, apparently she was very eloquent in conducting this, this visualization um, to the point that um, Dalai Lama was, by, by the end of it, was, was uh, crying. She continues, I was already well-schooled in feminism and the academic study of Buddhism when I began meditation practice. I had no idea how profoundly meditation would affect my self-righteous feminist anger. Observing that effect over more than 20 years has been an interesting journey. At first, my feminist then friends thought I'd lost it. It's one thing to inherit a patriarchal religion and try to work with it. Many of my feminist friends were making that choice, but to convert to a patriarchal religion was incomprehensible. No wonder they questioned my basic sanity. My Buddhist friends were not much help either. The generic line was something like, that's okay, Rita, when you get to be a real Buddhist practitioner, you won't care about feminism anymore because you'll be detached. It was okay from their point of view to care about jobs and families or Buddhist practice, but not to care about the politics of affirming the preciousness of human birth in a female body. So basically, I found myself between two factions, both asking what, what, was, both asking what was the matter with me. You could say that she was being shot by both sides here. And it sounds like that's what it felt like. What happened was not what either faction predicted, which is where the magic connecting feminism and the path of practice occurs. After being involved in serious meditation practice for several years, I began to discover that I simply didn't find anger so satisfying any longer. Previously, I always wanted to, um, I always experienced emotional relief through venting verbally often with extreme sarcasm and cutting intellect. When I was overwhelmed by uh, misogyny and patriarchy, this is when she resorted, resorted this kind of harsh speech, this, these times. But I no longer found it so appealing to get mad when gender issues arose because, of, because the relief was not reliable anymore and I began to see that in any case, my anger was not doing anything to alleviate the general misery brought about by the patriarchy and misogyny. You can see here the crossover from one um, uh, precept to another, here where the, the anger gave rise to, to harsh speech, which generally doesn't help because it just alienates people. I began to realize personally the Buddhist teaching that aggressive speech and action always produce negative counter-reactions. I'm not sure that, that I'd be able to say always with, along with Rita Gross here. Um, and I think the, the, the traditions, the, the, the imagery of, of um, Vajrayana Buddhism certainly 
doesn't completely rule out aggressive speech and action. Uh, there are lots of wrathful deities that are to be found in the Vajrayana tradition, um, which which show the archetypal nature of 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 anger. And we have that in the tradition we've inherited from Japan too, where um, we have the figure of um, Fudo, this uh, this guardian deity surrounded by flames, scowling with his teeth going up and down in his mouth, one, one up, one down, uh, clutching his sword in one hand and his lasso in the other, uh, out to, to tame demons. Just to come down to a kind of um, everyday example of how, how um, harsh speech, speech may be um, something beneficial. You could think of um, a loud shout to stop your toddler walking onto, this, onto the street from the pavement. No! Just to get their attention and, and stop them in their tracks as they're about to step onto the roadway. But of course, behind that, there there isn't there isn't any any anger or ill will. Quite the opposite. So but we can see from this article that there can be times to shout, times to raise one's voice, at least. But we could probably say that that. Um, habitually aggressive speech and action always produce negative counter-reactions. If they're coming out of uh, coming out of the wrong place, she says, "I began to see that people tuned out when I ventilated my angry feelings, that my fits of aggressive rhetoric only caused." further mutual entrenchment rather than significant change in those whom I confronted. I wanted to do something more helpful. These changes were very scary at first because I feared that I was ceasing to care about concerns that had been central to my life for years. Maybe my Buddhist friends were correct and practitioners are not involved in causes but something else was also happening. With practice, the anger that had been so much a part of my feminism had started to transmute. I no longer experienced so much of the time that painful state in which clarity and anger are totally mixed up. The clarity remained, but the anger started to settle. My body no longer tensed with hot, explosive energy. Instead, I began to hold a relaxed body state that had nothing to do with giving in and everything to do with furthering communication. Now I test myself on issues. I find that if I explode into emotionalism, felt in the body as cloudy rage, I know I must work further with the issue by myself before I am fit for public communication about that issue. We're talking um, on Sunday about Thich Nhat Hanh saying 
that to to be able to encounter somebody highly aggressive um, skillfully takes training, years of training. As my anger became less urgent, my clarity concerning gender issues and the Dharma increased proportionately and my skill in expressing my, expressing my convictions about polarizing the situation without polarizing the situation also increased. I was actually becoming a much more effective spokesperson for feminism. I was not ceasing to care about it, as my Buddhist friends had been encouraging me to do, but ceasing to nurse my anger. I did not stop saying the same things I always had, but when I expressed myself less aggressively, people could hear what I was saying. I discovered a middle path between aggressive expression and passive acquiescence. And at times I have been able to bring about major changes in a meditation program because I simply maintain my position without aggression. And uh, I think her book is evidence of, of the, the, this clarity written with great lucidity, lucidity and clear argument and detail. But the key, the key here is, I think what she says, she ceased, she stopped nursing her anger. Because actually, anger is not our enemy. Um, in, in Mahayana Buddhism, it's, it's hatred that is our enemy our adversary, a primary adversary. And of course hatred comes comes out of, of of anger nursed, nourished, held on to, developed, fortified, entrenched. We do not have to choose between confronting someone or getting rolled over, even though that's what the conventional world teaches us. Thereby, some measure of victory over warfare may be achieved, because one cannot be so easily dismissed when one does not respond aggressively to provocation. This middle path is very hard to maintain. It takes a lot of being with each moment, moment by moment, to avoid getting rolled over or becoming confrontational. But that is the magic of the middle way. The point of feminism is not to fight wars, but to alleviate the suffering caused by conventional gender roles. Practice can tame the anger and unleash the clarity of feminism so that communication is more possible. Again, these useful images to tame our anger, not to get rid of it. It's a little bit like the ox, ox herding pictures, where where um, the seeker is, is um, leading the ox by the by the rope around his neck. But then later on, at a, another level, the, the, the seeker actually rides the ox.
Not only does meditation unlock the power of feminism, it also sustains feminism in the long haul. I don't see in any way that more than 30 years after I became, began to advocate feminism, I could still be talking about it if I had not begun to practice. If you really want to work with the world on something you care about, practice provides the staying power to avoid burnout, precisely because meditation tames anger and makes it workable. Practice seems to be the foundation for caring about the world without being exhausted. It is the foundation of a movement that people are beginning to call engaged Buddhism. A Buddhist feminism and Buddhist feminism will be a part of that movement. A foundation for caring about the world without becoming exhausted. I've often thought of, of um, a zendo like ours as a as, a, as an island of sanity, a place where people can come to re-energize themselves so that they can go back out into the fray. Otherwise, it's likely that we will at some point experience compassion fatigue, burnout. I could say we, we come to, to the Zendo to, to cool down a bit so that we don't burn out. However, even after our anger has been transmuted into clarity, we women who do not conform to conventional gender roles still often face a long and lonely haul. We are frequently punished by being denied love and companionship Quite commonly, we are told that, we, that more conventional women are more desirable companions. Feminist historian Gerda Lerner has commented that forcing women to choose between their intellectual spiritual concerns and their love lives is patriarchy's oldest and most de devastating device for self-maintenance. But few women want to live without companionship, just as they will not give over their precious human birth to conventional gender roles. Therefore, for me to maintain some equanimity took considerable effort and watchfulness for a long time. Only in the past few years has that effort transmuted into a steady, self-existing cheerfulness, which has been not sh a shocking experience in its own right. The transformation from feeling that my life was so difficult that I didn't know if I could take it anymore to appreciating the richness of my life has been delightful. You see, this is another, another layer in her process of experience, experience in meta, matri, a deeper, deeper, deepening acceptance of, of the richness of her life as it was rather than uh, as it, she wanted it to be. She says, I think you need more than formal practice for that to occur. You need community, and you need relationships with people who genuinely care about you. 
I found it much easier to flip struggle into cheerfulness when I was not only practicing but had an adequate container of relationship and community. I think this is this is going to be more and more more and more important for people to have a, um, a sense of of uh, community as they as they struggle with our many challenges that we're facing. She says, we understand that not only is formal practice absolutely necessary, but so is the support of a nurturing community. This is something we will be talking about for a long time. You could say it's going to be the, the, the rise or the strengthening of the third of the three treasures, the treasure of Sangha. And she, go, she goes on to talk about how feminism can bring, bring a real awareness of the value of community to uh, Buddhism. Says the wisdom of women's culture has not been adequately transmitted from generation to generation in the context of formal Buddhist practice and Dharma discourse in the past because of the prison of gender roles. Bringing the wisdom of women's culture into mainstream Dharma discourse is central to the magical interaction between feminism and the path of practice. Just um, finish up with a little bit of more about um, what we've been talking about. Really, is is um, anger appropriate? Anger in which. Anger at injustice, of course, is, is an example. There's also um, inappropriate anger, which I think we all have had experience either in being angry or, or the object of such anger. I'd just like to turn now to Another text, Being Upright, Zen Meditation in the Bodhisattva Precepts, by Reb Anderson. And um, he, talks, he talks some about um, uh, inappropriate anger and how, how it can lead to, to the violation of other precepts. A little bit like the 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 one uh, getting intoxicated can and, and anger is a kind of intoxication or can be. He says inappropriate anger is completely antithetical to the way of the bodhisattva. It can be the source of violating all of the other precepts. When we are angry, we might even think of killing those who are most precious to us. When we are angry, we might think of stealing something that we don't really want just to hurt someone. 
we might lie even when it gains, brings no gain to us personally. When we are angry, we can become angry at goodness itself. And he goes on to, to quote a, um, a sutra that I hadn't read from, read, heard of before, the Mah Maharatnakuta Sutra. Uh, I think it's a Pali Sutra. Um, and Upali asks the Buddha, suppose a bodhisattva breaks a precept out of desire, another does so out of hatred, and still another does so out of ignorance. World honored one, which one of these three offenses is the most serious? No, I'm sorry, this is not a Pali, it's, it's um, Sanskrit because it's, it's uh, about bodhisattvas. So he, we, we have one precept broken out of desire, one out of hatred, and one out of ignorance. And which is the most serious? The world one, honored one answered Upali. If a bodhisattva continues to break precepts out of desire for kalpas as numerous as the sands of the Ganges, his events is still minor. If a bodhisattva breaks the precepts out of hatred even just once, his, ascent, his offense is very serious. Why? Because a bodhisattva who breaks precepts out of desire still holds sentient beings in her embrace. Whereas a bodhisattva who breaks precepts out of hatred forsakes sentient beings altogether. It's a, a very, very interesting point for us to, to keep in mind. How, how hatred for, forsakes sentient beings, creates a sense of, of the other, a powerful sense of the other. Upali, a bodhisattva should not be afraid of the passions which can help her hold sentient beings in her embrace, but she should fear the passions which cause her to forsake sentient beings. Upali, as the Buddha has said, desire is hard to give up, but is a subtle fault. Hatred is easy to give up, but it is a serious fault. Ignorance is difficult to get up and is a very serious fault. And on this last one, ignorance is, is both difficult to give up and a serious fault. Because, of course, if you're ignorant of what's going on, you've got no chance to make any, any change. That's why it's more serious. Upali, when involved in defilements, bodhisattvas should tolerate the small transgressions which are hard to avoid but should not to tolerate the grave transgressions which are easy to avoid, not even in a dream. For, for this reason, if a follower of the Mahayana breaks precepts out of desire, desire, I say he is not a transgressor, but if he breaks precepts out of hatred, it is a grave offence, a gross fault, a serious degenerate act which causes tremendous, tremendous hindrances to Buddha Dharma. So, um, to keep in mind, and of course with, with anger can start with something as minor as annoyance, 
but if we if we um, hold it hold it to us, then it can can develop. So to to um, practice forbearance, this is this is the the key in working with with anger. And we'll we'll um, continue further with this on Sunday after after tea. Um, it's there's so much rich material that we can work with. And if people are coming to the session on Sunday, please bring um, any thorny questions you have with you. So we'll we'll stop here and recite the four vows. beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. <laughs>